This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Liel Leibowitz, and today on the show, we are celebrating Sukkot. That's right. We still have some apples and honey left over from Rosh Hashanah, and we're still recovering from the super intense experience that is Yom Kippur. And here we are again, celebrating yet another big old Jewish holiday. And Sukkot, let's be honest here, is a sort of mystery. When I celebrated it in my native Israel, it made sense. We're commanded to sleep and eat all our meals in our sukkah, which in October in the Middle East is a light jacket, super pleasant sort of affair. But staying outside for prolonged stretches of time in mid-fall in, say, upstate New York or Michigan or Minnesota, yeah, that could be challenging. To say nothing of trying to find a sukkah when you live in Manhattan, which is not exactly known for its abundance of readily available public outdoor spaces. A lot of the time, Sukkot just feels like one of those movies that has a really stellar cast, a great director, a killer plot, but for some reason, never really becomes a hit. One festive meal? That's great. One day of fasting? That we could take. But a whole week of living in a makeshift hut that we have to build ourselves? That's a bridge too far for a lot of us. So how should we approach this beautiful and mysterious and completely underrated holiday? My dear friend and Sukkot aficionado, Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpern, likes to say that Sukkot is a reminder and one that we so urgently need that there's nothing more whole or holy than a broken home. Because once a year, we leave our beautiful home. We put aside our obsession with real estate and interior design and comfort. We leave everything that we took so long to build for ourselves, and we move to this ramshackle hut with its thatched roof and its shaky walls to remind ourselves that even when we're comfortable and well-off and have dwellings you can look up on Zillow, we're still these people, the people who got their start slouching through the desert for 40 years. The people sustained by Hashem even when all they had to put over their heads were a bunch of palm leaves. It's a perfect way to cap off the high holidays. That journey that began with the month of Elul and its soul-searching and introspection. Because on Sukkot, we look around and we remind ourselves that it isn't our split-level ranch house or classic six apartment in the pre-war Manhattan building that gives us stability and security. It's our tradition. It's our faith. And frankly, it's each other, our ushbizin, the guests, the people we invite into our sukkah. So on this week's episode, we would like to take you outside the usual comfort zone of this here podcast to a bunch of stories that explore the meaning of this amazing holiday. You'll hear the newest installment of Beautifully Jewish with Stephanie and Tanya exploring the meaning of Sukkot by looking at some truly stunning and special objects. You'll also learn of that one time when Napoleon left his comfort zone and ended up in Israel, giving the world one of its greatest historical gifts. And you'll hear from producer Josh Cross, who never really connected with Sukkot until he moved upstate but first, we take you to Los Angeles, California, where Joshua Molina, our senior Etrog and Lulav correspondent, talks to the two people who helped make Sukkot one of his favorite holidays. His parents. Have a listen. This marks the triumphant return of my mom to the podcast and the dazzling debut of my dad on the podcast. And we're just going to talk a little bit about Sukkot, the festival of booths, tabernacles, if you will. As it were. My memory as a kid is it was one of my favorite holidays. It's still one of my favorites. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, in the suburbs. It was very, very cold. That's my memory of Sukkot, which made it sort of like Jewish camping a little bit. <laughs> That's as close as we ever, I think, came to camping. Do you have, what are your memories of early Sukkot's? Well, 
we had a sukkah, I think, almost as soon as we moved into our first home. Uh, neither Bob nor I grew up with the sukkah that our parents made. And so this was a great step forward in our level of connection to Judaism. Dad, you grew up in Brooklyn, and you said you used to go to sukkah at your synagogue? Yeah, oddly enough, um, sukkahs today, I think, is much, much more widely celebrated and observed, at least in terms of the building of sukkahs, uh, than it was in my uh, childhood, despite the fact that I lived in a very, very highly uh, you know, concentrated Jewish neighborhood. But there were not a lot of sukkahs that, that people had in their own homes. And generally, we would go to, to the local shul uh, at least a couple of times during the course of the holiday in order to have a, a meal in the sukkah. Were there sukkahs on people's fire escapes? Is that a real thing? <laughs> uh, if it was a real thing, it would have been probably on the Lower East Side. Yeah, Lower East Side. Um, you know, where my parents uh, grew up. But it's not something that, that we ever experienced. Did your parents have a lulav and esrog at home? You know, now that I think about it, I don't, I don't really remember. I think the answer is at least periodically, yes. Although there again, when you go to shul, you always had the opportunity to observe benching uh, lulav and esrog. Right. So it was not, uh, again, not, not nearly as common uh, as it is today for people to have their own uh, abaminim. The, the first one that we built was actually had no walls. It was made of wood, wooden slats uh, put together very, very uh, primitively. And then the walls were basically made of sheets uh, that would be decorated. So we still have, had impermanent walls. I mean, it was kosher. Uh, oh, oh, no, of course it was, yeah. it was kosher. No, what I meant is that it didn't have <coughs> solid. solid walls. It had walls that were made of, of sheets, at least one of which we still have and we still use in our own uh, circuit today. Uh, one that uh, I think, I believe your sister Toby um, did. I think Josh, too, decorated that sheet. On it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think we have. Yeah. Drawings and letterings. Didn't you have one custom made for the house on Victory Boulevard? Eventually, when, when we did some uh, significant redecorating in the house, we had uh, non-Jewish contractors, and we explained to them uh, that what we wanted was to have something not so much permanent, but at least more substantial and capable of having uh, uh, more interesting decoration. And they did a wonderful job of, of building a, a sukkah. It had two problems when it was finally completed. One is that it weighed about as much as the Empire State Building. And the second was that they misunderstood how sukkahs work. And all of the decorations were on the outside rather than the inside of the sukkah. <laughs> but we used it for many years after it was constructed. And one of the nice things, I think there were pluses and minuses about the East Coast relative to the West Coast. I grew up always wanting to sleep in the sukkah because I had read that... that you know, I guess for Hidor Mitzvah, you would actually almost live in the sukkah and sleep in it overnight, but it was always too cold. It was freezing. We would we would bundle up, but that's also one of the nice things is that we'd leave the warmth and comfort of our permanent structure, our house, and go sit and have a meal together in what was less comfortable, which I think is maybe the essence of the holiday. Or A, a funny note about that is that we would always invite our neighbors, our Jewish neighbors. Because uh, there's the Ushpizen, there's the exalted guests, right. and then there are the less exalted guests you bring to your friends and family. Well, we, we would invite our next door neighbors who did not particularly, I mean, they had some Yiddishkeit, but, but not a lot. And we would ask them to share a meal with us in our sukkah. And every time we did it, it turned out to be a freezing, freezing evening, and they were like rolling their eyes. What am I submitting myself to? I'm sitting here in my down jacket and mittens, and we felt terrible that they could never really <clears throat> enjoy the, the wonder of being in the sukkah because they were freezing. Yeah. yeah, but I would argue that that is one of the wonders of the sukkah. I mean, we moved to L.A., and it's much more comfortable. You eat inside, you eat outside, it's, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. They're both comfortable. Uh, and one of the nice things about moving to L.A. is I was able to realize the childhood dream with my own kids of sleeping in the sukkah. I remember the first time Isabel, before my son was born, she packed up a little rolling piece of luggage. <laughs> and we went and we slept in the sukkah together. And it was balmy and nice. And well, we did camp out. I've got to say that the dad and I were delighted to move to the warmth of uh, California and enjoy a warm sukkah. 
It's also, of course, the ideal COVID era um, mechanism for uh, those of us that are still concerned about and, and uh, trying to observe some uh, cautions. The reality is that it's an outdoor event and one that everybody can enjoy regardless of, of their level of uh, COVID concern. That's true. If you have a big enough sukkah to sit six feet apart. Uh, yeah, well you, well, you always had a sukkah much larger than ours. Yes, we ended up with the most recent iteration of our sukkah is like a big big Lego set, essentially, right? Interlocking pieces. And I still managed to almost always put it together <laughs> at least one mistake until you point out to me what I've done <clears throat> wrong. Also, at what point, so there's the Ushpizen, which is inviting our ancestors, the exalted guests to, in, uh, you know, in spirit to join us. But... Nowadays, the more egalitarian among us do the Ushpizata, in which we include <laughs> matriarchs. And when do we switch over to that? I've read that it's referred to that way. Well, we always we invited the, the matri- patriarchs and matriarchs in. Always? Yeah, always. We have a printed thing on, on the wall of the sukkah, right? It has to be more recent. The, the, the printed part on the sukkah is, it deals only with patriarchs. Oh, I guess in my head it all. No, we, no, we added them in. Yeah, probably about 10 years ago. Um, and there was no difficulty in finding liturgy available from a number of conservative and, and reform congregations that you know, created specific liturgy to include the matriarchs in, in the Yushpizen. I wish to point out, I feel it is my mission to point out that the matriarchs are certainly as important as the patriarchs in celebrating these holidays, because behind every holiday is a tired woman who has been cooking, 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 so that everyone can enjoy these holidays, which revolve around eating. That's a, that's a very fair point. It's a real <laughs> slap in the face to celebrate Sukkot and then invite only the patriarchs. Yeah, the, the women the are too tired to come in. No, they're in the kitchen. <laughs> That's what I mean. They're in the kitchen. They can't drag themselves into the sukkah. Yeah. Well, well said. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This next segment is our latest journey into the world of Jewish things. That's right. It is the second installment of Beautifully Jewish, hosted by me and Tanya Singer. Today, we are talking about the sukkah and how a temporary structure can have a lasting impact. Yeah, I mean, a sukkah in general is like, it's a pretend universe, right? It's like, we are looking up and imagining that we are living 3,000 years ago in boots, like walking through the desert. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's all make-believe. That's Rabbi Adam Baldachin of Shari Tikva in Scarsdale, New York, talking about the holiday of Sukkot. More than any other holiday on the Jewish calendar, Sukkot revolves around an object, literally, the sukkah. Rabbi Baldachin is Tanya Singer's rabbi, and he's here with us in her backyard where we're building her sukkah. And on this installment of Beautifully Jewish, we're celebrating this object that is by its very essence totally temporary and transient, and yet deeply meaningful and lasting, and beautiful. For me, there are two different memories of what a sukkah means. One is that we are literally living in the same huts, the same booths that our ancestors did as they came out of slavery and physically needing structure in order to keep them alive as they went through this very precarious moment. The other one is an experience that we can relive every year and even every day in that the sukkah represents the anane kavod, the clouds of glory, that helped the Israelites move from one stage to the next, protected them, gave them a GPS system in the desert, and reminded them that um, they weren't alone and that they were going somewhere special. Um, And then the next generation was able to feel those clouds of glory as they started to build a place within Israel that they could call home. So for me, it's an opportunity to connect with my ancestors and also to recognize that spiritually being out in nature 
and being under these clouds of glory is something that I can recreate each year as I sit in my ancestors' shoes and create memories for my kids who can then remember what it was like to be with me growing up and perhaps can remember what it was like for our grandparents and great-grandparents back thousands of years. It's a literal metaphor that even goes beyond the generation that came out of Egypt because it also gives us a chance to imagine ourselves as farmers living in the land of Israel. It gives us an opportunity to remember the ancestors that were not slaves in Egypt, but actually made it into the land, started growing crops as sustenance farming. We put ourselves into the shoes of our ancestors so that we can be grateful. Sukkot physically reminds us, okay, now get out of your comfort zone and go and build this sukkah and sit in it with your family, even if it's cold. The sukkah can fall down in the wind and we have to pick up the pieces, but the process of building that fragile structure, sitting in a fragile space really is often the experience of life. We should enjoy it when we have it, recognize it that it doesn't last forever. The sukkah's essence is its impermanence, but that doesn't mean you can just throw it up any old way. There are rules for how to build a sukkah. The sukkah has to be built a certain way. So the sukkah has to be at least three tefachim tall. A tefach is the span from your pinky to your thumb, if you're holding a fist, that's one tefach. So it has to be at least 10 of those. And it can't be longer than 20 amot. And an ama, if you hold your hand with your elbow bent like 90 degrees from your elbow to the top of your hand, that's one ama. And it has to be less than 20 amot tall. The guidelines come from the Talmud, which means things can get a little Talmudic. You can actually ride on an elephant with a sukkah above you, and that counts as a sukkah. You can also use an elephant as a wall for your sukkah. Remember, the, the, the Talmud is full of amazing stories of Jews that tried to live with whatever they had and to make it sacred and meaningful. So lots of fun questions come up with, well, what if you only have this? And what if you only have this? The sukkah itself has to be a little bit more than two walls and the walls themselves can be made up of lots of different materials, mm -hmm. but it's important that the schach, which is above the sukkah, cannot be a tree, and it cannot be connected to something on the ground that has to be on its own. Say that word, the, what, what schach? Where does this come from? <laughs> it's the craziest word I've ever heard. Schach. Schach. Schach, which is probably one of the easiest words to say in Hebrew. Schach. <laughs> is, no. It's the roof, it's the covering over mm -hmm. the sukkah and it actually is connected to the word sukkah, but schach oh, is yeah. the name of the roof. So yes, there are regulations, arcane as some of them might be, but once the structure is built, it's up to you or your family or your community to make it your own. And that's where you get to make it beautifully Jewish. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and today we are looking at how the sukkah is the perfect canvas, a deeply Jewish space calling out for personalization through crafting or art. We're going to show you how these temporary huts can become universes unto themselves, keepers of meaning, memory, and history well beyond just this one week. You'll meet a modern artist who designs prints specifically for sukkah walls. We'll also transport you to pre-war Budapest, where one family's sukkah and its extraordinary painted wall hangings attracted Jewish visitors from far and wide. But first, it's time to build and beautify a sukkah, the one belonging to my beautifully Jewish co-creator and co-host, Tanya Singer. These are felted sunflowers. I cleaned out Trader Joe's the other night. They're like humongous yellow felted sunflowers. There's other, there's pom-poms that go in. There's a lot of fibery things. I have these crocheted pomegranates. I can't remember. I might have bought these on Etsy. Tanya's been building her sukkah for years and has a garage full of amazing decorations. These are these mason jars, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Wait, they're all... Oh, they're so cute. They're all different. Crocheted. You crocheted these? No, I bought them from someone on Etsy and I put these little... Um, so it's like you were like mason jars weren't like and cute enough, I have to cover them with something oh, crochet. Yeah, because like, what's amazing about them, so I put these little like faux tea lights thingies, mm -hmm. 
and then they just glow. They glow and they have that pattern on the outside. Yeah. That's amazing. And somehow it like feels like there should be fireflies or something. Yeah, it does. This is exactly that vibe. It's such pretty ambient light. I love this. Yeah. And then I am making a box for my Etrog. I'm obsessed with Bargello, which is a kind of needlepoint. This is the bottom. I have to do all the sides and stitch them together. A lot of people go to like Michael's or Joann's, but like that's just not me. I like earthy, more natural, organic kind of things. And to me, a sukkah is an organic thing. So having things that feel like a human touch them that are made from like natural fibers just feel like they fit better in a sukkah. I asked Tanya what she likes the most about being in her sukkah. This is for me as close as I get to camping. I feel like I'm in nature. I have enough comforts. I have a rug. I have a comfortable chair. It makes me feel like I'm in nature. You can hear. You can hear the cricket sound, which to me is such a sound of high holidays in Sukkot. It just makes me feel like I'm in that season. And it's just super relaxing and mellow. And when you have friends over and you're sitting outside and you've got the little lights, I guess being in a sukkah is a way to like unplug. When I'm in my house, I'm noticing all the things I have to do. I have to empty the dishwasher. I have to make dinner. Like I'm thinking about all these chores. When I'm in the sukkah, I'm just in the sukkah. To be honest, most of the sukkahs I've been in have been pretty drab and unmemorable. So the idea that a sukkah can be lush and warm and vibrant, it feels like a whole new world. And as we know, thanks to our favorite principle of Hidor Mitzvah, beautifying things only adds to the mitzvah. So let's add those carpets and colors and twinkle lights and tune into the beauty and the magic that can exist within these four walls. Something Tanya was really excited about were these new prints she had ordered for her sukkah. They were paintings of pomegranates, amazingly textured, with colors that popped against the green canvas walls. They seem so perfect here because that's exactly what they were designed for. It's art specifically for these walls. The artist who makes these is Yaeli Vogel. Tanya and I headed to the Jewish enclave of Cedarhurst, New York, to meet Yaeli in her gallery. We parked on Central Avenue, the town's main drag, next to Mom's Kosher Bakery and a fancy wig shop, and got out in the pouring rain. So we're in Cedarhurst. It's on the south shore of Long Island in Nassau County, so it's right by JFK Airport. We're across the street from Yaeli the Gallery, which is where we're going to go to meet Yaeli Vogel. Yaeli's gallery features her large-scale paintings, the Yaeli line of tableware in Judaica, plus illustrated prayer books and playing cards. At the front of the gallery is a full-size sukkah, featuring her latest collection of vinyl prints reproduced for Sukkot. A lot of Jewish history is very immersed in like sadness and where, you know, all the trials and tribulations that we've been through and all the suffering. And I want to, I don't want to depict our, our life like that. I want it to be colorful and beautiful and see the, the happiness in it. I feel like looking around, there's so much color, like really bright, beautiful color. And it just feels so joyous. Yeah. It just feels beautiful. You feel like you want to sit up straighter and then you're just awash in color and beauty. Okay. You're supposed to adorn your sukkah, just like your home, make it beautiful because it's supposed to be a dwelling place, like a home, a house for seven days. You're supposed to live in it. And so it's supposed to be just as beautiful as your home would be. And people decorate it with all different decorations. And so we offer art for people for their walls of their sukkah. Yaeli Sukkot prints feature images of Jerusalem, the splitting of the Red Sea, and the Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals. She likes her art to highlight the celebratory aspect of Sukkot. The Day of Judgment is behind us, and we have this beautiful festival that brings us into nature. And I love times that are just happy times, you know? Like, it's, we, 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 have, we have so much to be grateful for and so much to celebrate, and we get to do that in this day and age and just, you know, really be, we're so fortunate, and just, it's just a beautiful time. Yeah, Ellie found her way to painting unexpectedly. And the sukkah was part of her inspiration. It was very organic. I didn't mean to start painting. I was painting for my house. I painted a few paintings in my apartment. I painted for my friend's birthdays. Like I was always painting. I always had paints with me. And then one sukkah, it was like 2014 or 15, I painted 
a Shivat Haminim set for my sukkah. It was the Shivat Haminim, the seven fruits from Israel. So I painted, you know, the grapes and the olives and every, every canvas was its own. So I told you, I love painting like these luscious textures and all the colors. So people came into my sukkah and they were like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. I'm very passionate about Jewish history and our origins and where we come from. Always, I've been like that since I'm little and I've always loved, just very intrigued in studying all about it. And I love painting different scenes to continue on our heritage and traditions and to give people that inspiration that, you know, we, we mean something, we come from somewhere and we'll keep going. We come from somewhere and we keep going. Nowhere is that sentiment more clear than at our next stop, where we experience the power of the sukkah to root us in history, family, and tradition, no matter the cost. We are here in the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in downtown Manhattan. That's Rebecca Frank, the museum's curatorial research assistant. In uh, our rather new core exhibition, which tells the history of Jewish life before, during, and immediately after the Holocaust through over a thousand objects and photographs and testimonies. Tanya and I are here to see wall hangings painted by a Hungarian Jew named Aryeh Steinberger. There are seven panels measuring seven feet high by more than 30 feet wide. Every inch of the space is filled with intricate illustrations. Prayers, biblical scenes, everyday life in Hungary, Images of the Land of Israel. It's a giant mural filled with dozens of intricately painted scenes. He painted all of this to adorn his sukkah walls. You wouldn't know it by looking at this magnificent work of art, but Arya wasn't a trained artist. He was a cantor and a ritual slaughterer, or shochet, for most of his life. He was in his 60s when he started painting these sukkah walls. When his family began using the wall hangings in the 1930s, word quickly spread. Jews across Budapest would come to their sukkah to see Arya's handiwork. In the left-hand corner of the seventh and final panel, you could see the artist's unconventional signature. It's a lion, because Arya means lion in Hebrew. I could have looked at the panels for hours. Every nook and cranny was filled with details. There was an image of the family's living room, complete with a cabinet filled with Judaica. Images of Moses at Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. And on one of the panels, in a scene so quotidian you could almost miss it, is an image of a young woman carrying a baby. That woman, named Piroshka, and her remarkable journey are how these panels came to be hanging here today. Arya himself passed away in 1942 when he was about 82 years old. And that was prior to the Nazis invading Hungary and to really the Holocaust beginning for Hungarian Jews. During the Holocaust, after Nazis had invaded and as the threat of deportations was really looming for his family, they decided to separate the wall hangings into the different panels and roll them up and hide them in the basement of the Great Synagogue on Dohani Street in Budapest, which is also depicted on the wall hangings. It was hidden there among with various different valuables that belong to the Jewish community in Hungary, different Torah scrolls and ritual objects and Judaica, including a number of different Torah scrolls that Arya had also made for his grandchildren. During the Holocaust, a number of different family members were murdered by the Nazis in various different places, but the surviving family members who were able to survive in Budapest returned to the synagogue after the war, and they were able to recover these two wall hangings. And it was really his granddaughter, Piroshka, who we also saw her depicted with her baby on the sukkah. She was really who took it in her possession, and she was the oldest of his grandchildren that was still living in Hungary after the war. And many of the family members have described Piroshka as a form of spiritual descendant of Arya. She was really creative as well and was so passionate both about him and her love for him and also her respect for him and of the sukkah itself. In 1956, during the Hungarian Revolution, Piroshka fled the country, and she carried her grandfather's sukkah panels with her. When they were escaping, they were told to really bring as little as they could, and everything was mostly that they were hand-carrying. 
And it was of the utmost importance that Piroshka brought this sukkah panel. So she again separated it and rolled it up. And she used her son George's raincoat to cover it up. And they carried it by hand as they traveled and they escaped into Austria and then spent some time in Vienna, eventually going to Munich and eventually arriving here in the United States in 1957. But the entire time, she never let go of the sukkah and she was holding or of these sukkah wall hangings because she didn't want it, you know, in a cargo of a ship or somewhere. She wanted to make sure that it was safe and able to be brought here to the U.S. One of the ideas that we have about a sukkah is that it represents like this protection when the Israelites were in Exodus and we were fleeing Egypt and it's this cloud that God was protecting us in the wilderness. And I think about the sukkah and Piroshka, I think about Piroshka who had just survived the Shoah and then is risking her life again and saving the sukkah, but maybe the sukkah saved her. I believe that. Because I heard something similar when I sat with Tanya and Rabbi Baldachin. Tanya's father passed away on Yom Kippur last year. And between the grieving and the logistics, Sukkot was the last thing she had time to prepare for. So when Rabbi Baldachin asked her how he and the congregation could help, she realized what she needed was actually pretty straightforward. She needed a sukkah. Tanya was like, it's Sukkot, what do I do? And we just happened to have this sukkah available because we were upgrading. And so we were able to go and to build it at our house. Um, it's, I think it's those kinds of experiences that are so powerful for people to not feel alone, but realize that if you have a rabbi and you have a community that things are possible, right? And I keep saying for the first time in my life, I feel like I have a rabbi, like you're my rabbi. I feel really lucky that I get to say that. Um, I. I'm feeling very emotional um, by hearing you say that, partially because that's why I got into this business in the first place. Um, I connected in that way with my rabbi, and I hope to have that um, connection to all of my congregants. I went to hear Tanya tell it. You said to her, what do you need? What can we do for you? And she said, I need a sukkah. I have no time to find the one that's like in our house somewhere, figure out how to put it together. And you guys brought, you built a sukkah, you built something completely tangible, like in this way you you supported her and showed up for her in honestly this incredible way that we're sort of seeing again this year, right? We're sitting in the same structure that is this, this world you created for her. So the fact that she's putting it up again is amazing, right? And my hope is that um, the, the love that she felt from the community last year is still stuck on the walls of the sukkah and that she feels that as she starts her sukkot this year. This sukkah truly made me feel literally enveloped by our community. Being with Tanya in her sukkah was another visceral reminder of the power of these structures and these rituals to connect us to what's most important. Having something so tangible makes these lessons that much clearer. As I left Tanya's house that day, I couldn't help but feel enveloped as well in the warmth, in the tradition, in the beauty. I asked Tanya if she would share with us how it felt to finally be in her sukkah. Everybody left, and I'm alone in my sukkah, and I'm admiring the calming pale green walls, mossy green walls. The sun is coming through the skach, just like beautiful streamers of sun. The bright yellow flowers just like make me feel happy and feel the height of the sukkah. Everything in here was made by human hands. It's all something we get to build ourselves. I have this tablecloth I purchased from Yaeli Vogel that almost looks like a giant coloring page. It's just watercolor, black on white. And it just makes me feel like this whole year is something we get to create. Beautifully Jewish, a new monthly segment on Unorthodox, hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Tanya Singer. You can find photos of everything we featured today at tabamag.com slash beautifullyjewish. We'll also share how to use a Bargello kit to make an etrog box, like Tanya did. Share your Beautifully Jewish things in our Unorthodox Facebook group, by email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or on social media using the hashtag beautifullyjewish. We'll be back next month with a Beautifully Jewish Shabbat.
Broadway Comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our next segment is part of The Archive, our exploration of the National Library of Israel and its treasures. It's about Napoleon. What's he doing in our Sukkot episode? Well, it's a story about connecting with our past and leaving our comfort zone and Israel. And most importantly, the one incredible discovery that changed the way we see history forever. What was it? And why did Napoleon give it away in exchange for a ride? Here we go. Napoleon, as we know, he wasn't someone who would wait for historical developments. He believed that he could create them. Leibowitz, and welcome back to the Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. And again, I'll be guiding you across history and the globe through this library's amazing collection. Today, we're back with Dr. Stefan Litt. He's one of the library's head curators who, on the first segment of the Archive, as you may remember, took us through Sir Isaac Newton's manuscripts about the end of days. On this here segment, we're moving past Newton, onwards in history, towards someone who, like Newton, is a very big name. Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte I, or as we all know him, Napoleon, the guy who doesn't wait for historical developments, but creates them himself. So sit back, fix your barret, grab your café et croissant, and hear what Napoleon's historical creation binge has to do with Egyptian hieroglyphics, a wartime letter from high British military command, and the land of Palestine? Napoleon, in today's terms, is thought of less as a person and more as a description of someone who's domineering, aggressive, or who's just got that short guy complex. But in actual history, Napoleon is one of the most consequential French leaders, or all leaders for that matter, in modern times. He was born in 1769 and was just a young lad when the French Revolution swept across his nation. But the revolution was, well, chaotic, civil unrest, 
economic depression, some guillotines, and a little reign of terror, you might remember. Not pretty, but it did open up a power vacuum that our man Bonaparte jumped right into. He took control of the country by coup when he was just 30 years old. And as a dashing, aspirational dictator, he would rule by iron fist and regularly invade nearby lands. Now, this may sound gloomy, but Napoleon actually did a lot of great things for his country. Like, for example, abolishing feudalism, creating public education, and, oh right, emancipating French Jews. He allowed them to live freely as equals among their countrymen. Our story, however, begins not with Napoleon the emperor, but with Napoleon's rise to power when he was a mere general. And by mere general, I mean a military genius whose tactics are still studied today. Back in 1798, a year before he took control of France, Napoleon was ready for his next history-changing adventure. He had just proved himself on the battlefield in Italy and had a protracted fight with the Brits going on. It was summer and he dreamed of a little beach vacay, of sailing far, far away to a scorching land filled with boundless desert and ancient pyramids. So when Napoleon and a huge French campaign army showed up on the shores of Alexandria in Egypt, It was very close that maybe Egypt would become the first French colony in Africa. Napoleon said clearly, okay, if we want to stop the British, we have to be present in Egypt. So let's go there. So Napoleon arrived in Egypt with nearly 50,000 troops, and he turned it into more than a military incursion. So he was convinced that in order to rule over a very foreign country with a foreign culture and a different uh, religion, you have to have a lot of knowledge about this country and uh, the region and its inhabitants and their customs. Therefore, he brought more than 200 of these experts with him, a group of scientists who were covering almost all fields of knowledge. Experts in everything. In Biology, everything. Biology, culture, religion, yes. Language, archaeology. botanical questions, zoology, and whatever you can think about. And their task was to document, document, document whatever they found and see and heard and felt in Egypt in order to really conquer from inside. Okay, so Napoleon's got troops. He's got smart scientists and zoologists working to understand Egyptian culture, digging stuff up left and right. And yet, he couldn't contain himself. He had, like, military ADD. And he needed to go create some new historical developments. So he marched over to Egypt's neighbor, the land of Palestine. The country was then under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, and Napoleon actually defeated the Turks in Jaffa and took control of the city right next door to modern-day Tel Aviv. And then he started making his way up north. And that's when I realized, standing in the National Library in Jerusalem, that, oh, wait, this is all very close to being Napoleon land. So this campaign was on its best when he came back from a very short trip to Palestine, trying to conquer also this very area. He was defeated before Akko, Acre, when he was trying to conquer also this city, but he couldn't do it. Napoleon getting pushed back in Akko was significant, because Akko back then was a central point between Egypt, where his main battle was taking place, and Syria, Turkey's neighbor and Napoleon's desired route back to Europe. So conquering Akko would have meant, in Napoleon's words, that he was one step closer to making himself emperor of the East. But as Dr. Litt told us, he failed, which was unfortunate, For one, because some say that Napoleon had promised to give Palestine back to the Jews if he conquered it. But also because this defeat was the beginning of the end of his Middle East beach vacation. Not only was his Israel expedition not going according to plan, but his Egyptian one wasn't either. 
His troops weren't happy, people were deserting their posts, and everyone was getting the plague. As we know, the general story was a big, big disaster for France. After three years, they were more or less helpless. Napoleon left after one year already. So there were many, many losses for the French forces. And that's the reason why he had to resign from Acre and return to France, telling a big story how successful everything went and why he is such a genius. And as we know, a couple of months later, he was head of France. His big support was actually the fact that the French did not have a fleet anymore. It was bombed by the British soon after they arrived to Egypt. And they couldn't go and check. And there were no other news, you know. That was his news, his story. And he somehow managed to go back to France on a tiny ship with a couple of men and sold his big story. And that was one step, an important step on his personal career, of course. So Napoleon was really good at fake news. One small problem, though. His troops were still in Egypt three years later. The original 50,000 soldiers had dwindled down to around 16,000. And they wanted their baguettes back, which is how the National Library's artifact comes into play. A 200-year-old letter from the Brits to the French. So after three years, the French were in a hopeless situation and um, there was a big problem because the French didn't have any fleet still. They couldn't return on their own ships. So the British doing a lot of pressure on them and explaining them nicely and not so nicely. You do not have a choice anymore. If you want to go home, we can help you. But uh, that has a price, of course. You won't get it for free. And we have a letter written in French by the British commander-in-chief, John Haley Hutchinson. And he's writing to General Menou, who was the French commander of the French troops. And this letter explains nicely, they want to go home, we can do it. We have the ships and exactly. that's the end of that story. Yeah, that's the end of that story. What's the price? All archaeological artifacts that you found in Egypt go to us. And in the beginning, they even insisted that all the um, scientific <laughs> materials created by the French in Egypt should also hand it over to the British. That didn't happen. But all the original artifacts went to the British. And in particular, he is pointing out, Hutchinson, that above all the other artifacts, there is one special piece which says, Une pierre déterrée à la rosette one stone which was uncovered in Rosetta. And that's the Rosetta stone. The Rosetta freaking stone. Okay, okay, guys. The Rosetta stone is a big deal. It's one of the most important artifacts ever discovered. It's a big old rock, a slab of hard stone that's around four or five feet tall and completely covered in etched writing. These etchings turned out to be an official decree from an ancient Egyptian civilization, straight from the king's mouth, though the experts Napoleon had brought with him didn't know this at the time, because, well, they could barely read it. So why did the French, and also the Brits, want it? This decree was written down in three languages. It's ancient Greek, hieratic, which is another old ancient language, and it's hieroglyphs. Okay, so they were suspecting that this piece might be the key in order to crack the hard nut of old ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. So they were right. So left with no choice, the French caved to the Brits and gave up the Rosetta Stone and the other treasures their experts had salvaged in return for a ride back home. The Rosetta Stone was the most expensive Uber ride in history. And this is why today, you find the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum in London and not in the Louvre in Paris. Though ironically, it was a Frenchman who eventually cracked the hieroglyph code. C'est la vie! For all this history creating that Napoleon did, all this gallivanting around Egypt and Palestine, what important history did he actually create? I mean, Napoleon did take power after coming back from Egypt, but the whole military escapade in the Middle East was kind of a massive failure. He lost like two-thirds of his troops and basically abandoned the ones who stayed behind. 
and he didn't even bring the best piece of loot back with him to France. Well, Dr. Litt told me that Napoleon's Egypt campaign has repercussions that are still felt till this very day. It actually created two distinct academic fields, Egyptology, the study of ancient Egyptian culture of hieroglyphics and stuff like that, and modern archaeology. Because remember those experts Napoleon brought with him? Well, they started digging around, literally, and found the Rosetta Stone and all sorts of other treasures, which they felt the need to catalog, understand, and study further. And all this history creating, and in particular, the library's wartime letter from the Brits to the French, also raises very modern questions. Because, like, who does the Rosetta Stone really belong to? So I love this letter because it's not just about the Rosetta Stone, but it also explains to the French, why do you complain about our demands? Look how you behaved in Italy. You've stolen so many artifacts from museums and collections in Italy and brought them to Paris. So what's wrong with our demand? <laughs> okay, so. And uh, I think this is also the moment when all the discussions of cultural assets and uh, national cultural artifacts and collections and so on was born. You know, we have it today very fiercely. It's post-colonialistic questions. Should we... We, meaning the Western cultures in Europe, and give back all these artifacts which fill our museums. Were these pieces stolen from the original countries? Were they taken? Were they saved? And I think this is the first document related to these big questions. And the British are basically saying, look, if we steal from the people who stole it, we're, we're sort of clear. What's the problem? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amlia Leibowitz signing off from the National Library of Israel. Until next time. Hey, J. Crew. Ever wondered what the Rambam's handwriting actually looked like? Or what about the theological ruminations running through Sir Isaac Newton's head when that apple fell down on it? Did you know that in addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent also wrote love poems? These and dozens of other amazing treasures are now available to view in 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, a stunning fine art volume richly illustrated with high-quality photographs of manuscripts, books, maps, posters, music, and more accompanied by stories about these significant works and the intriguing people behind them from one of my favorite places in the world, the National Library of Israel. The book again is 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, now available on Amazon. And also on October 22nd, the National Library of Israel opens its new building, a stunning architectural feat where these and many other objects of our heritage and culture will be on display for you to experience firsthand. So make sure to include Jerusalem's newest destination in your travel plans. The National Library of Israel, your story, our story, and one of my favorite places in the world. Before we end this year's episode, we want to take you somewhere different, somewhere rural, to upstate New York, where producer Josh Cross stumbled onto a sukkah of his own. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that a few weeks back, we played a segment that included a bunch of Orthodox men trying, unsuccessfully, to get me to put on tefillin. Now, I consider myself a thousand percent Jewish, but that ritual isn't for me. I'm not really a go to shul and pray kind of guy, even if I do really celebrate a lot of our traditions and rituals. So I've never wrapped tefillin, and I've also never had a sukkah. However, the sukkah is actually kind of surprising because that's a ritual I would totally do. I've just never gotten around to putting one up. That said, at some point while working on this very Sukkot episode in my home in the mountains of upstate New York, I realized I actually did have a sukkah. It's my actual home here. It's not halachically or Talmudically kosher, but it is most definitely my booth. 
Why? I've got five reasons, and they may help you look at Sukkot, or at your own home, a little differently. So here we go. Number one, we're really out there among the wilds for good and bad. Like the holes in the shkach on the roof, the house isn't airtight. We get bugs inside and we have woodchucks in our dilapidated barn. There are all sorts of issues you don't deal with in the city or suburbs. While our roof doesn't leak, mostly, when it's cold outside, the house is cold. When it's hot, it's hot. It snows a lot and there are bears and deer that pass through our land and eat from our garden. There's also a cute family of foxes on the property that is distinctly less cute when they start screaming at night and it sounds like a sorority slumber party from a horror movie. And if Sukkot is about being literally outside, it's important to note that I didn't really feel right in the house until we found two things. First, a park bench that I could put out towards the woods, and second, a picnic table. Anything I could do indoors, I could also do outdoors, and weather permitting, it's so much better and I feel so much more connected to the planet. I have to think that to some extent, while wandering through the desert at some point in one of the less sweaty moments, somebody looked up and was like, hey, it's pretty cool to be outside here. Number two, we bring in Ushpizin. One of the most important parts of Sukkot is the Ushpizin, or welcoming in guests because a sukkah is a place to build community. The community I'm in when I'm on the seventh floor of my apartment in New York City is very different from the one-off New York Route 23 when I'm upstate, especially with some neighbors who like to fly interesting flags. You see the occasional Confederate flag and more than a few flags supporting political candidates who I find, to say the least, very distasteful. But while I avoid the folks who seem like downright bigots or nutjobs, I love talking to the people up here. And while I've got wine racks and they've got gun racks, I've gotten to know them nonetheless. I hit up the annual swap meet, buy more cauliflower than I ever need at the annual festival. And just last week, I opened a corner of my property to 113 ATVs who wanted to drive through for their annual rally. This non-traditional sukkah has actually opened me up to the Ushbizin in my small rural community. And I love it. Number three, we eat. If there's one thing that people know about sukkahs, even more than how you're supposed to build them, it's that you eat in them. This is a harvest holiday, a holiday of plenty and gratitude. The pleasure of taking your meals outside is obvious, but it's also a barbecuer's dream. Burgers or ribs, kosher, of course. Smoked salmon, your Shabbat chicken. Do it right and it's like Jewish hibachi under the stars. Also, even in the colder months, when dinner might need to be eaten from under blankets or with a bonfire, it's still fun. And at my sukkah, I relish this. In the city, for various auditory, olfactory, and climate reasons, there's really only a few months where outdoor dining is actually pleasant. When I'm upstate, something magical happens, and most of the year is open for service. Number four, we decorate and surround ourselves with our teachers. As you heard in Stephanie's Beautifully Jewish segment, we're supposed to make our sukkahs cozy, comfortable, and beautiful. This is the first place that I've ever had the room and time to decorate from scratch as I saw fit. There's art that we found and liked, but we've hit on another concept from Sukkot, that we can and should surround ourselves with the memory of our teachers. For some, this means great rabbis and learned folks. For me, it's my studio, decorated with my grandfather's World War II memorabilia and my living room, with my record collection and family heirlooms. Those are my teachers and my inspirations. And that brings me to number five. We connect with the generations. All the previous examples were really about the same thing. Carrying on things that our parents did and theirs before them and all the way back as far as we have stories. It makes me think of the workbench in my barn with tools I inherited from my father, my grandfather, and others that I've just acquired over the years. I use these like they did to build and repair my space like they would have. When a door breaks or the picnic table needs a new layer of clear coat or my kid just wants me to hang a mirror, I follow in the footsteps of the people who use these tools before me. And each time I look at a sukkah, especially mine, it reminds me of how this is a thing we've just always built. So yeah, I'm probably never actually going to build a Talmud-approved sukkah. And hopefully, unless we put in that skylight, I'm never going to look up at the stars from my bed. But for me... The essence of what our people have done for millennia on Sukkot inspires everything I do with my home. And if you're looking for me this Harvest Festival, that's where I'll be. 
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Special thanks to Rabbi Adam Baldachin and the crew from Shari Tikva, who you could hear building Tanya's sukkah. Also, thank you to artist Yaeli Vogel, whose work you can find at yaelivogel.com, and Josh Mack and Rebecca Frank of the Museum of Jewish Heritage for showing us the Arya Steinberger sukkah panels. Upper panel loaned by Yehuda George, Robert, and Paul Lindenblatt, sons of Yeno and Piroshka Lindenblatt. Lower panel loaned by Magda Tevner, granddaughter of Arya Steinberger. With appreciation to Irene White, Richard and Alexander Placek, and Peril Rosenfeld, children of Andor Placek Weiss. Our beautifully Jewish creative mavens are Jenny Rosbrook, Abby Glassenberg, and Vicki Katzman. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. And our theme music is by Golem. Send us emails at unorthodoxatabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. From our sukkah to yours, shalom, friends. Okay, I did it. Lohisimos. <laughs>